Let me uh, begin just with a, a prayer here. Father, we do give this day to you, and Lord, we acknowledge our, you are able, and you're a God who has entered our world through your Son, and we give you thanks and for um, the work that you have done for us, and we just want to worship you, and we want to know you better. So we give this time and this day to you, these things we pray in your Son's name, amen. We're uh, coming to the end today of a series uh, titled, Is Your God Too Small? And i, I got to up front warn you a little bit. Uh, you're going to have to have your thinking caps on a little bit more today. Um, and uh, it's going to get a little bit, a little deeper theologically, I think. So think of this as a little bit of a theology class today, a little bit different. Uh, it's a little more complicated. But I want to begin by putting a quote on the screen. And this is what it says there. Let's see if we can get it up there. There we go. The size of your worship is determined by the size of your God. In other words, if my view of God is tiny, my, my response in worship to him will correspondingly be tiny. On the other hand, if my view of God is huge, as it should be, then my worship experience will naturally be huge as well. And when you stop and ponder that statement at first reading, it is very and so true that far too often we live as if God is a small God and our lives, our responses in the way we live, I think reflects that almost in a, 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 a bad view of God, an understanding of God when, when we really don't realize just how big and awesome he is. Matter of fact, I want to show you some verses that really express his bigness. Uh, first one from Isaiah 40, verse 12 there. He measured the waters of earth in the palm of his hand. He marked off the skies with the distance between his thumb and his little finger. He made the doors to shut in the oceans, and he holds the stars in his hand. And then another one here, Psalm 8.3, a familiar verse maybe. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. See, I think we all would gain, really, in going deeper in our understanding of God's omnipotence and his transcendence. And we maybe should be more diligent to see the beauty of his creation and stand in awe before him. And I think too often we have moments where we forget the bigness of God, how he created the expanse of the universe, he rules and sustains it. And the result, as we look at that, we should be worshiping him. But here's where I got to go farther today, and where it's a bit more complicated. See, here's what I believe. I think at some level, as we look at our creator, I think there's this subconscious level where we begin to rate the qualities of God, the attributes of God. And we put them in an order of what is most important, and we kind of go down from there. For example, if if we look at creation, and we maybe we're an outdoors type of person, and we, we look and we go, boy, that's God in creation. And here's how we do. We apply words to that. It's words like power, 
creator, sovereign, ruler, all of those apply to that type of a belief. And it gives, understand that the words really that we really hold to most important, even about God, really we begin to define God surrounding those words. So because words are important, but they also then, as words are important, they create a lens for us to understand and define God. And here's what I believe, that there's kind of default settings to different views, and one of them that I think is very prevalent even in churches of today, and I want to put that first point on the screen there, a default view of God. People tend to believe that God is primarily the creator and the one in charge. Now, if we ponder creation and we view God through nature, see, our emphasis then will be God in control, God's power, his authority, his sovereignty. And by the way, all of those words are true of God. But here's where we need to go. There's a problem of imbalance as we emphasize and as we create these lenses in order of God's attributes. And if we're one that emphasizes his creative power, that that we look at creation and go, that's who he really is only. There's a problem with that particular view. And if you're following along in the notes, I said, here's the problem. And here's where we've got to think a little bit. If God's primary identity is creator, ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. Now read that statement again. If God is first creator to you, you understand, it demands that he has a creation to rule, that he's created and he rules over it. You catch the dilemma there. To say it in a different way, God wouldn't be God unless he has a creation. And here's where you got to, kind of push through and listen carefully. God was fully God before creation came into existence. God doesn't need creation to be fully God. And what you understand, most of the attributes that we refer to him as ruler, creator, actually came to be and were actualized after creation. And by the way, they're all still true attributes of who he is. See, but we know that God existed before creation and the universe was even formed or made. So now here's where, again, you got to think with me here. God is sovereign over his creation. We hear that. But if there's no creation... His sovereignty is not into play. It's not in effect. It's not actuated. God is holy when we make that statement. Holy means to be set apart. God was never set apart until creation came into existence. There was nothing to be set apart from before creation 
God is ruler. When there is no creation, ruling was totally irrelevant. Are you following where I'm going here? Now, I could spend a number of weeks on going down this path, and you have to think of yourself like you're at a theology class, but I understand this leads really to the last view of God in this series, the last big view of God. And in many ways, it sums up all the other views that we've been talking about for these couple months. And all of them have been pointing to this. This is really, folks, the, the crown that we must embrace and get. If you're taking notes, the big view of God, we must buy into this wholeheartedly. We have a God who is relational. Relational. See, we, we can stand in awe of God's creativeness. But listen, we should be even in more awe of his desire to actually be known by his creation. He wants creation, us as people, to know him. See, one can be drawn into the greatness of his powers and miss the, the example of, of that he's a relational God. He can be out there and not close by. We have a God, actually, that's first relational, that transcends even his creation. And I want to kind of walk through a number of verses that really points this out. Now, I want to make sure that you're not hearing that I'm trying to minimize his rule, his omnipotence, his, his power. That's what I'm not going We need to be worshiping him for that as well. But turn back to Psalm 8 here. I want to add a couple verses that I did not give you when he read this the first time. Look how it reads here. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now in verse 3 there, the heavens and their hosts are the creation of God's fingers. Uh, fingers, there's a term here, a theological term, called anthropomorphism. It's where you put human traits and you ascribe them to God. Okay, And here they use the word fingers. God doesn't have fingers, but it gives us an idea of what's going on. In Scripture, if, for example, if, you, use, if they, you talk about the arm of God or the hands of God, that one really suggests the power of God. The, the fingers here, what most people would say is, it really describes his intricate skill as he created the universe. The amazing design is evidence of his creative genius as he created this universe. But you'll notice here, it it goes on, the heavens are God's. It says, your heavens. God made them and he manages them. He's in control of them. He owns them. See there, God is sovereign over his creation. But there's a third piece in this text here this morning. And it fits into the big view of God for today. And it's this. It's man's uniqueness in creation. And that's what's implied what David is writing here. When he reflected on the splendors of the heavens, 
And then he pauses here and he wonders, what is man? What is man? That Jehovah would so graciously bless mankind with this marvelous creation. See that verse 4, you are mindful of them. God is mindful of mankind. And he takes care of them. Folks, that is a far more powerful statement than I think we, we catch on to at times. Because the implication here is this. David is suggesting that man stands alone in the universe as unique. See, we tend to view ourselves as kind of a speck in the universe. And that the universe overwhelms all of mankind in creation. And folks, that is not biblical. See, rather than suggesting that man is but an insignificant speck, see, David goes, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? And it's this, God is thinking about a relationship with people, with us. It's the significance of a relational God. For your notes, I just need to fill that in for you there. Number one, God has bestowed Honor upon people because we are made in his own image. You could put Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 here as well. But to say it differently, mankind is the focal point of creation. God appointed man to have dominion over creation. Now it's true because of sin. We've failed to do that. But do you realize that when you think of God wanting to have a relationship with people that he broke into creation as a man. I'll say it this way. God didn't come as a cow to save cows or a dog to save dogs. Jesus came as a man to save mankind. We are the point of salvation. See, why does God value man, really, over creation? And it's this, Genesis 1.26, because we are made in his image. More, It's unique than anything else in all of creation. We are made to be relational with him because relational is his absolute nature. Again, this is the stuff you dig at in a theology class. But with that point, I need to go down a path here. Because the tension that we have is we have a culture right now that's elevating creation over man. And elevating the animal and the kingdom world and putting it on the same plane as man. And folks, that is not biblical. The purpose of God's creation was that creation was for the benefit of mankind. And one day creation will be done away with and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And creation was never intended for us to worship creation. Now it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of it. No, we need to take care of it. Of course we do. But the story of the Bible is reconciliation with sinful man. Now let me show you another aspect of this that really points this out as well. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to use the modern English version here. But look how it reads here. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth through unrighteousness. For what may be known about God is clear to them since God has shown it to them. The invisible things about him, his eternal power and deity, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and are understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. Now just put a couple thoughts here on on this particular text that the focus, oftentimes the focus when people preach this, is about the wrath of God who suppressed the truth. And that is true. But notice in verse 19, 19 here, that God is making it known. He's making himself known relationally to the world. God has shown it to, who's them? This isn't the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. This is people. Now, what's he making known? A couple things. One is power there. But that second one is the word deity. It's the word deity there. And deity is that which distinguishes himself from everything and everyone else. It includes his full godhood. That which he truly is, his complete identity. Now, here's where I think we miss the obvious point too here. The purpose of creation was to reveal himself relationally to the world that he created. Another way to say it, the fact that he reveals himself in creation cries out that God wants to be known by people. So he's saying, don't just admire my creative powers. Don't just worship me for being powerful. He's saying, I was creative and I'm using my power that you might know me. That we would know him, the triune God. Some want to say that this implies that God is in everything. You go, no, no, no. That he's in creation. No, what it's doing is that creation is, keeps whispering, maybe in a loud whisper, that God is going, come close to me. I want, to, I want you to know me. Understand who I am. I'm a relational God. You see, God is going after us relationally, even in creation. But let me keep digging here, and this is going even a little deeper here. I want to put up 1 John 4.16 here. And, and this is one of the foundational texts that God is relational. Look at what it reads here. So we have come to know him and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, what do you think John is saying here when it says God is love? Does it mean that God loves more than anybody? Maybe it's saying that God loves without ceasing. Or maybe it says that God loves truly and in just the right way. Or that God is really, really loving overflowing with love. Now, all of those are true statements, but they are not equal to the statement that says God is love. It doesn't say God is loving, which he is, but it says God is love. There is an object here. 
See, I, I, we tend to love something or someone. And, and we don't say that Jack is love. We say Jack is loving. But we never use that term Jack is love or some other name to that. Put your own name in it. That's not how we, we, we function. So, so how could a single person in, in isolation be love? Now, maybe you've never thought of this stuff before, but here's where you got to think hard here. When we proclaim that God is in unity in three persons, the Trinity, this is about the Trinity, folks. Then the statement that God is love makes complete sense. Because what it does, it reveals the Trinitarian nature of God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have always been. They are now and they will always be in a loving relationship with one another. And when John writes, God is love, it's because God is inherently in a relational love within the Trinity, the triune God. The loving relationships between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit form the basis of the essence of God. And folks, that was happening before anything was created, was the triune God. That's his identity. It's what makes him unique. And I don't know if you realize this. In the world out there, lots of people claim gods out there. But none of them, for our claim, their claim is not about a relationalness in their uniqueness. Matter of fact, for Mormonism, you understand that Jesus is a created son. There's a singular God there in Jehovah's Witnesses. Singular. Islam, singular. See, the Trinity, three in one, all living in eternal community, says then that God is relational. He cannot not be relational. So when we say that God is love, we are in essence defining his deity and his ultimate the essence of who he is. Fill in that blank there, number three. I need to give that to you. The Trinity, which is relational, defines the unique essence of his deity. That is what makes him unique. Before anything existed, the Trinity was there. And the essence of that relationship was a father loving the son and the spirit communicating that love between the father and the son all in perfect harmony. There was no jealousy, no competition, perfect union, perfect oneness. That is why we can say God is love. Now, I hinted at this two weeks ago when we talked about the picture of Raising up a bride for the son from John chapter 17, verse 24. And I'm not going to read that again, but it's the picture of that verse is saying this, that the father, because of his love for the son, decides to give his son a gift that was going to be us, the body of Christ, the church. And we need to catch this 
is that God creates creation. Why? To raise up a people that would be a gift to the Son, which is the church. Before creation. We were in the thoughts of God, relationally speaking, before creation even came into existence. So what does this imply? Even about creation. Do you recognize creation wasn't just to show us power? Creation has its roots in a love between the Father and the Son. Creation is actually the love of God spilling out of the triune God. See, we keep thinking that creation is just about to show His power and then we're supposed to worship Him for His immense power. Folks, God doesn't need us to worship Him because He created. He really did it. He he created creation for grander purposes than that. And because God is love, he did something else. He wanted those that were made in his image to know himself, that he is relational. And yes, he gave a will to Adam and Eve, and they turned their backs on that relationship. And the consequences of that are immense. But see, he wasn't done because he was a relational God, and he was love. And he didn't stop. And look at the result of John 3.16. Understand the context then of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, John 3.16 is because God is love. He extends his love into his creation. And he loves so profoundly by sending his son. And the son had to humble himself and he had to die on a cross. Why? Because there was going to be a bride that was going to be raised up as a gift for his son. Because the father loved the son. Uh, Let me fill in that blank for you, number four. Because God is relational, a gift was given to build a perfect relationship with us. But in our sin, we were trapped in imperfection. Now, I I do want to be careful here because some people want to talk about universalism here and say, because God loves everyone, everybody's saved. And you go, no, not at all. Salvation comes, Ephesians 1, of responding through faith to the Son. Salvation is responding to God's loving initiative of sending His Son. But let me give you another set of verses for this theology lesson. Because He is relational, there's another consequence of Him being love. And realize this, He never forces His love on us. And number five, I just got to remind you of, of this before we get to these verses, because God is relational, he invites us. He doesn't force it on us, but he invites us to respond to his love. See, we keep approaching the scriptures as kind of like this. You know, I've got to be obedient, and that's the basis of my love, obedience. Folks, people can try to be obedient with God and have nothing to do with a relationship with him. Realize that God sets also, God sets the parameters of what that relationship looks like as well. 
We don't set those parameters. He does. So are we to obey? The answer is yes, but it's in the context of relationship. And look, look at this, this verse here, this next remark of what he really wants us to obey. Look how it reads here. Mark 12, 28, And one of the scribes came up, and he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, and Grand Rapids Free Church, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Do you see what he's inviting us to? He said, give your love to him with your mind, your will, your soul, your heart. Express that love then because of that to others around you. See, discipleship really is about restoring a relationship, building a love relationship with a relational God. Now, i got to ask you a question. Parents, and if you ever teach Sunday school or try to influence others to know God, what kind of a God are you presenting to people or to even your children, the people around you? Are you presenting him as a distant power? A judge? A moral lawgiver? Are you presenting him at all as a relational God? Or are you promoting that he's the only one that needs to be obeyed for obedience sake? Folks, are you presenting him profoundly as a relational God? Are you presenting God as attractive and here's an interesting word are you presenting god as lovely is god lovely to you you know what that word lovely is made up of love god is love you catch what god wants us to do We keep giving our love to everything else and he keeps going, can, can, give your love to me. And he's inviting me to do it. One last note here. Uh, As as a church, what do we want? And This is what I so want for us as a body, that we're responding to his love to make the great commandment as the center of all we do. We want a love for God to propel us on a mission to make disciples, to be used in a re- to, for other people would find a relational God. So it really leads to one last point, almost an application point. Number six in your notes. Because we have a relational God, discipleship is a relational affair from the beginning to the end. And the great commandment is the core of discipleship. Discipleship is not stoic dedication or a mere commitment to a certain doctrine or certain morality. It's not learning about the facts of God so you can pass a quiz or fill in the blanks of a Bible study. 
Discipleship is starting with a relationship with God and it ends with a relationship with God. It's about experiencing Christ and the Father firsthand. Abiding in Him continually. And we're called to teach those who put their faith in the Son to have a relationship with the triune God who loves them completely. And that is the essence of Christian life. So when we love Him, when that happens, what takes place? Guess what? Obedience. Worship. Wanting to tell others about God's love and mission flows because we begin to experience his love and we cannot not do it. And that's why we're actually gathered here today. To experience his love. To grow up, that we would be learning to love him more every day. And when we walk out of this building today, that we begin to focus on God and it spills out into other people's lives. We just don't have to go out and convict people of their sin. Allow the love of the Father to draw them in and the Holy Spirit to convict them. I want to invite the elders and those who are going to serve communion to come on up here. But maybe an assignment for this week. What if you did this? You can't quite go down and sit in your dock, okay, right now. It's you've got a few weeks for that. But what if you're to take a walk and you look around and you look at people and you look at his creation and you just stop and ponder and go, This God wants to know people, want people to know him. And so when you're taking your walk this afternoon, when you're looking at the beauty of what he's starting to unfold here after the snow is leaving, God's whispering, saying, I want to know you. So the challenge this week, spend some time hearing the whisper of God going, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want you to understand who I am, a relational God, and that's the starting point of a triune God. Guys, if you want to hand out the bread, and you understand communion even this morning, this is God entering into our world. And he said, do this to remember me, is that Jesus broke through in creation, and he said, you got to do it because we... We're dead in our sins, and I want to rebuild the relationship with you. And we pause and we remember God breaking into creation to save men and women. And that's why we can worship him even at a communion table today.